Welcome to episode 10 of the Ralph Peterson Podcast, the podcast that gives you tips and strategies to help you become an effective manager. Today's episode is titled, How Do You Listen to and Engage with Your Staff? In this episode, Ralph interviews listening expert Oscar Tremboli. Before we hop into the show, I don't want to forget to mention that Ralph has a new book coming out next month entitled, The Good Manager, Being Great is Overrated. You can download your free chapter and learn more about the book at thegoodmanagerbook.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Until next time, stay well and take care. So great to uh, finally connect with you virtually, eye to eye anyway. You seem to have Hi, quite Ralph, a... I'm looking forward to the chat today, looking forward to listening to your questions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting time for me because... I don't know if you've ever heard of, I mean, you're in Australia, so I imagine you guys probably have something similar. In the United States, we have what is called a Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award, and it is a national award that companies can compete against each other for, and they're even industry specific. So textiles can, be, can compete with other textiles, auto manufacturers can compete with other auto manufacturers and do you have anything like that in australia any kind of national yeah we we have we have awards run by the by the federal government ironically uh all quality awards about making your organization better against itself rather than against others so find a great irony in quality awards that are looking to compete when it's all about constant improvement yeah, no, so so good. That's exactly so. That's exactly what I've been working on. So I have been working on quality awards for the healthcare industry in the United States, and more more specifically, the long term care, so nursing homes in the United States. And one of the biggest challenges that companies have answering is all about listening. So how do you listen to? And engage with your customer how do you listen to and engage with your or communicate and engage with your staff how do you communicate and engage with your community right so on and on and on and on and on and the reason why I think it's so fitting to have you on and to talk to you about this kind of this kind of subset questions on a quality award even though it is organizations looking at themselves mm. because it seems like you have a lot to say even though you're the listening guru you have a lot to say regarding oh, yeah, the idea of listening that's the irony you know i'm on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world and the way i have to do it is by speaking as well as listening <laughs> so yeah the irony's not lost on me ralph that's for sure and <laughs> when it comes to the context of of long-term care, the, the definition of customer is very interesting because it's not just the, the person that you're looking after, it's their extended family as well. So the question I'd pose if I was sitting there and judging is great, you have systems that are able to look after the person in your immediate care, but do you have systems that help you listen to what they haven't said? Do you have systems to listen to their family and extended friend friendship network? And then when it comes to dealing with staff, there's a big difference between hearing and listening. And listening is the willingness to take action. 
listening is the willingness to have your mind changed. And unfortunately, in a lot of large complex systems, people, organizations that employ a large number of people, uh, they do the hearing bit well, they might do surveys, but most don't implement what the staff have said in the last survey. Most don't implement what the customer or whatever the definition of customer is in their last survey. And that's the big difference. People will leave organizations and systems because they don't feel like anybody's listening to them. They might hear them, they might survey them, but have you really implemented what they asked you on the last survey? I, I speak to a lot of large employer organizations that do these employee surveys and they also do customer research. And my simple question is this, have you implemented everything the customers and staff asked you on the last survey? Just a quick show of hands. <laughs> and uh, typically nine out of 10 people in the room don't have their hand up. And then I ask the one or two or three people who are brave enough to put up their hands. And I say, um, if I was to ask your staff right now, if you implemented everything in the last survey, would your hand still be up and the hand slowly come <laughs> down? So whether it's uh, listening to a manufacturing line, whether it's listening to staff or to customers, the cost of not listening is huge. And, and the biggest difference is people don't actually take the last step. So listening is before, during and after the conversation. And it is possible not to listen after the conversation is finished. That means you haven't taken the action that you committed to do. That's a really great graphic action of you're not listening. You're just hearing. It is challenging. It, well, let me bring up two challenges. Number one, it is challenging not to get defensive. <laughs> it is super challenging just listening to you and, and, you're right, and I have an awful lot of, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but this and yeah, but that, and you know, I, I have, I have a, I run a business, a management development company where I listen to people all day come up with kooky ideas. Not, they're not all implementable, right? Sometimes people are just throwing at me. Uh, problems and complaints wrapped in sarcasm, you know, and a little bit of hate and discontent. They're not action items, right? So it's, it's very challenging to take all of this information in, build a strategy around what you're hearing, and then create action items from there so that you can implement even one third of the information and the suggestions that customers and, and staff bring to you. And, Quite honestly, and that's why I get so defensive. That's why I'm sitting here and I'm getting defensive, and I recognize I'm getting defensive. Yeah, well, and, and, and and as as someone in your profession, you've just beautifully explained one of the qualities of the fourth villain of listening, which is the shrewd listener. You're in your own mind formulating solutions and implementation plans before you fully listen to what they've got to say. What's interesting, Ralph, is listening is not about you making sense of what they're saying. Your role as a listener is to help them make sense of what they're thinking. And if you took a little bit more time to ask a how-based question rather than only a what or why-based question, which is typically 
any brief taking profession, a, a medical professional, a lawyer, a consultant, they will ask a lot of questions about why and what. But the big questions that they need to spend a little bit more time is asking questions about how, where you talked about implementation, we're talking about questions wrapped in how. So your job is not to figure out which idea is kooky or not. That's not your job. That's their job because they're going to own the system long after you've left. As, as amazing as your consulting capability is, it's only as good as the system's capacity to absorb it. So exploring how-based questions when you do do those interviews and reserving 15% of the time for how-based questions, which would be questions like, so help me understand how you'd prioritize these three kooky ideas. You wouldn't probably say that, but you might ask them to prioritize that. But in that moment of asking them to prioritize, you're helping them to make sense of what they're thinking. And all of a sudden, helping them to go through a process of prioritization moves the solution away from you and over to them again. So it's a beautiful example of how if we just pause and ask one extra question, we'll be surprised at how the ownership moves back to the person with the issue or the system with the issue. And that's the power of listening. It actually gets you more time in the day if it's done well, because you're helping them to make sense of what they're trying to understand, not the other way around. I like that a lot, especially in the context of management where most of the most of the time management is active problem solving right so it's it's otherwise you're not needed right so something is not working or somebody is not doing something and so you're always tasked with the how do you solve it how do you fix it and i and i i can appreciate how valuable it is to say to someone else how how what would you what would you do in a situation how would you handle it and in fact I had one manager recently had two people in a department be at odds with each other and they are, you know, butting heads and it comes to a verbal showdown. And so now that there's been a verbal outpouring that has affected the entire group and other people have heard and now rumors are spreading over this verbal altercation, the manager's at their end. She doesn't know what to do. And I said, quite simply, I said, well, you need to get them to either choose to either they're going to work together because they're in the same department, literally working in the same room together. They're going to either learn how to continue to do that or they're going to learn how to or they're going to just decide not to do that. Now, which one goes, which one stays? I don't know. I said, why don't you ask them what you think, what they think you should do? And she said her feedback from that was you would not believe the silence when she brought the two of them in the room and said, you think this and you think that you tell me what i'm supposed to do and it was just silence after that because it was the first time that somebody had put the onus on them to come up with the how hmm. and they weren't sure they just wanted it solved they just wanted this person to be gone or that person to be gone but they didn't want to take the responsibility and so once you put it on them it's fun it was interesting yeah and i would invite you to explore another perspective that uh, if leadership is, uh, your proposition is leadership is a problem solving system, I, I take it a step further and say leadership is creating a system for people to succeed and bring their highest performance to the workplace. One of the questions I'd pose to the leader that you spoke to then is how did she contribute to this being created? 
because a lot of the time people just think the issue is these two people who are going at each other but that is a symptom it's not the root cause and the question the leader needs to reflect on is what does she do to contribute to that situation coming about and where is she turning up as a leader in the same way in other parts of her system so too often uh, looking at the symptom these two people arguing at each other is the most basic level of listening but listening to yourself as a leader can help you bring about more systemic and process-based change which takes us back to your quality awards systems that have high quality that's sustainable have that baked into processes and systems not just at individual levels as well and that's why I often invite the leader to pause a moment and before they jump into that situation it's very common Ralph that kind of two two co-workers uh, having disagreements and verbal altercations but quite often uh, there is something that the leader reflects on they should have uh, being clearer in roles and responsibilities. They should have uh, brought the parties together sooner. There, there are many ways leaders can listen to themselves to understand the role they've played in contributing to what is a suboptimal outcome. Nobody wants to go to work in a workplace like that, especially those two co-workers, but also the leader. It wasn't much fun bringing them to bring the two together, but there was that beautiful moment that you talked about where she paused and used silence to do the heavy lifting. In that moment, she moved from a, a parent-child relationship to basically saying, hey, there's three adults in this room. How are we going to solve this as adults? And that's why the silence came about. It's very intuitive of you because it really was the manager's fault. Well, it, the manager certainly perpetuated the environment for this to happen. And so that was the first conversation we had. But then after that conversation, we still had to still we still had to deal with these two employees who are uh, who are still at it. But you're, that's very intuitive. That's funny that you uh, you picked up on that. But I, I was trying to gloss over that to just give you the the heat of the argument. But um, yeah, million percent. <laughs> so one of those things, you know, managing and and I meant to say managing, not leading, and and I intentionally tried to use the word manage instead of lead because I think that management is is systematic and repeatable where leading is um, not <laughs> under under traditional under traditional definitions of the dichotomy between the two is a, a manager is somebody who is system orientated and task orientated and, and is just in charge of this thing and a leader doesn't even have to have a title doesn't have to be in a position of leadership to or management to be a leader. Well, that's all fine and dandy. That's like a clock, a broken clock can get be right twice a day, right? I mean, that's not helpful. It's not you can't count on. It's not systematic. So, I leadership to me, the term gets a little too wishy washy and out there for me. So, I'm really more. I meant to use the word manage because I'm I'm way more manage orientated. And I think you can be a great leader if you are a pretty good manager right and you you can do it systematically you can do it you know over and over again whereas without the title it's hard to be a, a, a leader more than one or two times on purpose if you don't have the of the title that's true stupid stupid little tangent there but let me ask you i'm, I'm super curious you know talking about the question of why or how how, how did you even get into this where how how does listening become a focus of study and why what, what happened 
I wish there was like a one lightning bolt event that it happened and all of a sudden I figured out why listening. But, you know, I went to a school with 23 nationalities. Uh, there were people from different war-torn parts of the world whose home language wasn't English. We played an Italian card game against each other in pairs and I couldn't speak their language. So I was always listening for body language to try and figure out how to win at card games. And because they were speaking in their home language, their guard was down when they were giving away facial expression. So I could, I could listen to how they were touching the cards, how their eyes moved differently, how their head tilted differently, how their shoulders moved differently. But I only, I only figured that out like after the fact. It wasn't like in the moment I thought, oh, wow, I'm a listening person. Here. <laughs> and, and then in the workplace, when I was leading teams in, in telecommunications and software organizations, I, I, I'd never struggled with uh, attracting talent to my team. And I'd always um, ask people, look, before you come to see me, um, Go, go to the customer contact center and tell me one thing I don't know about the customer. And, th and that will be the basis for the interview. And I was very, I would, I, people would roll their eyes in our leadership meetings because I would always go about 25% of the way into the meeting. This is all great, but have we actually discussed this with a customer? Do we have customer evidence? Have we been listening to customers? And then it was... 2012 where I was in a budget setting meeting between our head office in an organization I was working with at Microsoft which was in Seattle we had Singapore the regional office and Sydney our home-based office and we we're in a very complex negotiation about a budget setting Ralph and it was about April time frame and we had three more months of planning to commence the fiscal year and head office is always asking for the bigger number and the subsidiary is always asking for the smaller number and poor old Singapore has to act like Switzerland and be a broker in between. <laughs> and the meeting was very tense. There were 18 people on this video conference and at the 20 minute mark, uh, my vice president, she looked me across the table. We're in the same room and said, Oscar, can you see me immediately after the meeting? And when Tracy said that, I just thought straight away, how many weeks of salary have I got banked in my bank account because I'm surely going to get fired. When somebody says that to you, that's like your wife saying, honey, we need to speak. <laughs> it's not going to be good, right? So um, the meeting concluded and, and, and Tracy asked me to stay behind and she said, look, I, I really need to talk to you about what you did at the 20 minute mark. And... I said, sure. And uh, she said, look, do you realize the impact you had with the questions you were asking? Because if you could teach the world to listen the way you do, you could change the world. In fact, she said something immediately after that that floored me. And it was, if you could code the way you think about listening, you could change the world. Now, Ralph, it was very profound, but it completely went over my head in that moment. All I was doing was going, yes, I haven't been fired. I'm not getting fired. It's really good. And, and in that moment, a seed was planted to go, hmm, I wonder, I wonder how that could be real. Uh, four weeks later, one the clock forward four weeks, uh, my chief financial officer and my chief uh, operating officer asked me to attend a different meeting which was the budget setting meeting for Australia for all the states. But all they wanted me to do was to observe their listening because they'd spoken to Tracy. 
and I said, look, I'm, I'm too busy. I've got a, I've got a big revenue line I have to land in this fiscal year and I just haven't got time for this listening stuff. And the CFO Brian said it would really mean a lot to me if you would come along because I think it would make a difference. So for the first time in my life, I had to write down what I thought good listening was as I was watching Brian and Trace and uh, Tony in action. And what I noticed really quickly was, wow, they listen completely different to me. Wow, the room's reacting very differently. Um, wow, there's uh, a lot of people cutting each other off and interrupting. There is a lot of people not asking the second question. People aren't using silence. And from that came this model that we've got 1,410 people now in a research database over two years that we're tracking, which is a research model to go, are, are the five levels of listening helpful for people as we go around the world? And, and that's baked into our listening quiz. You can get that at listeningquiz.com and it can tell you what are the three things that are getting in your way when it comes to listening. So I guess that's the kind of journey I've been on and then somebody challenged me about four years ago to go you know what's your goal what's your target you can't just say you're going to improve listening in the world and I said oh you know before I leave the planet it'll be a million and Matt said to me oh no come back next month and add a zero and I was just scratching my head going how do I teach 10 million people how to listen over the period of the month I thought about it I came back I I've worked in the software industry, I understand distribution systems, I've worked in telecommunications, and I said, yeah, I can see how it could possibly stretch to 10 million in my lifetime. And Matt said, add a zero, come back next month. And I just went, are we going to do this every month? And he said, no, here's the point, Oscar, if you can achieve your goal in your lifetime, it's not ambitious enough. So the reason I'm asking you to stretch your thinking is you'll think about the way you come to this problem very differently when the scale of the problem is much bigger. And we only have to look now to the world as it is, whether it's in the US or in China or in Europe, the systemic, systemic lack of listening has created many, many, many fold problems and that if we all took a little bit more time uh, that that will be solved. But for most of us, we don't have to deal with giant size global problems when it comes to listening. It's just listening to the people we work with and listening to the people we, we live with. If we could get that right, the rest would sort itself out. I have so many, I have so many thoughts and questions regarding how do you become a better listener? Like what because you're absolutely right. I mean, just on the global stage, I mean, if you just look around the world, nobody's, everybody's just shouting at everybody. Nobody's giving anybody the time of day. So how do you start? Where do you start? If you want to do, like, if I just, I, I just want to be a better listener, what, what, what should I do? What's something I could do? Yeah, Shut up. I'll, 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 talk, <laughs> I'll talk about three, three really simple things to think about, but most listening literature, most um, people, when it comes to listening, think the most important thing to do is focus on the speaker. That is the completely wrong place to start. So listening starts with listening to yourself. Most listening literature will talk to you about the techniques you need to enable to focus on the speaker. The problem with that is most of us turn up to a conversation, Ralph, with the last meeting going on in our head, the last conflict we had with this person going on in our head, 
anticipating what's coming up next, thinking about what we need to eat for lunch, thinking about what we need to set up for the weekend. In fact, for people listening to this podcast, that's happening for you right now. You're completely distracted. Your mind is wandering somewhere else. You might be uh, jogging, you might be cooking, you might be doing something else altogether. So welcome back. It's okay. <laughs> I'm guilty of all of those things while listening to podcasts, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my favorite podcast place, uh, Ralph, is uh, whilst I'm mowing the lawn. I can't do too much. And uh, when I mow the lawns on Saturdays, uh, that's the most fun place for me to be is drifting away in another world listening to podcasts. So what you've just... The, the, the science and... Um, art of listening means that the neuroscience tells us we speak at 125 words a minute yet we listen at 400 words a minute so we are programmed to be saying to ourselves i wish they'd speak faster and they can't so you drift away automatically and if you get a, a cattle auctioneer, they might be speaking at about 200 words a minute and you can still comprehend them. And we know that uh, blind people can listen to audio podcasts at three times speed and have full comprehension. So really? know, I did not know that. I did not know yeah, that. So we know the listening capability of humans is much faster than the speaking capability of humans. And that's why it's critical that you switch off all the browser tabs that are open in your mind before you get to the conversation. Most of us have this tab open about planning and this tab open about the weekend, and this tab open about what we want to achieve with a conversation, and there's no room for listening in our mind. So here's the three tips um, to make listening really simple for everybody. Tip number one, switch off all your devices. Anything that buzzes, beeps, notifies, vibrates, switch them off. Uh, I was hosting a meeting in Sydney with 20 CEOs with a visiting Microsoft executive, Peter. He'd flown from Seattle to Sydney, nearly 24-hour flight, and we were hosting these 20 people in a city hotel, and it was a big boardroom table, and I just introduced Peter to the room, and he was about to get into his thing, and he got up, walked away, stepped over, took his cell phone out of his pocket and put it in his bag and switched it off. He came back to the room sat down and I thought, wow, where's this going? And he said something incredibly profound. He said, the most important thing I can give you after traveling 24 hours is I need to give you my complete and undivided attention. Now in that moment, Ralph, what do you think happened with the other people in the room? Well, they all shut off their phone, right? <laughs> right? So you don't have to travel halfway around the world. You don't have to move across eight different time zones to be the leader in the room that creates that listening environment. But it surprises me how often I go to client meetings and before I start, I do this very elaborate piece of theater where I say, the most important thing I can give you right now is my complete and undivided attention and I switch off my phone in front of everybody. And guess what? People who are completely addicted to their device, they do exactly the same thing. Now what they notice that happens next is the meeting has a completely different texture, it has a completely different tone, everybody's focus is there. And when I say give attention, I don't mean pay attention. Pay attention sounds like taxation. <laughs> you know, it's something you have to do, whereas give attention is, a, is an act of generosity. 
Now, look, if you can't go cold turkey and switch off the device, just switch it into silent mode or switch it into flight mode or switch the red dots off. Too many of us let the technology use us instead of us using the technology. Now, I can say that because I spent 30 years of my career selling technology to people all around the world. So I know the psychology that goes into those little red dots to keep you engaged, those little beeps and those hits of dopamine that you're going to get when you get there. So tip number one, Ralph, switch off all those distracting electronic devices. I have two more tips, but I'm curious to hear what you're thinking about tip number one. Well, I'm, I think that I have been trying for a long time. I host workshops. I'm, I'll go into a long-term care organization and I will be working with 15 new managers. They're brand new. And, and, and just so we're clear, what I mean by a brand new manager, if you're not, if you haven't worked with a new manager in a while, they are, they're very excited. They're very important. A lot of times they're very important for the very first time and they wear it as a badge of honor. And so those beeps and alarms that come from a cell phone, that could mean that they are needed somewhere to solve a problem is like putting the cape around their neck. And once you get a cape on, it is super hard to take it off. You want everyone to see that you are a superhero. You want everyone to know you are in charge. That you want everybody to know you are important. That you are that. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the the that's what a cell phone is nowadays. Those beeps are important to them, and to ask them to get them to not turn on their cell phone or to God forbid, don't bring it with them. I mean, it's crazy to turn it off to put it on silent mode. I've done so many things. I have, I've been where I say, everybody put your cell phone in the middle of the table. The first one who answers it buys lunch. That never works. Nobody cares. I, I finally resorted to one of my best hacks that I've come up with is I bring charging stations with me. Charging stations. I'm talking 15 or 20 different types of plugins for phones. And I tell everybody, I have all the charging stations right here. I'm going to give you multiple times throughout the day to go to the bathroom and check your phone. You will not be without your phone long. Just please put it on silent for now. You can plug it in. That way, if anybody says, I tried reaching out to you, where were you? My, my phone is plugged in. Do you know how many times people come to a meeting and their phone needs to be charged? They're always looking for an outlet. I brought the outlet. Don't worry. I've got you. And I put it up with me. So it's very uncomfortable to get into the front of the room to interrupt the speaker to come get your phone when it's not time to look at your phone, right? That's been my biggest success. Not a foolproof, not 100%. But I got to tell you, I think they'd be far more responsive if I did that and before that I said just what that CEO said and just what you say. The best thing I can do for you today for being here is giving you my undivided attention. So I'm going to turn off my phone. I brought charger said I'm going to plug it in so I don't lose my battery. And if anybody wants to plug in their phone, they can. I'm going to give you my undivided attention. I think that is the best. I've never heard it put that way. And I think that's the biggest takeaway is that is, I think that's going to be a pretty good game changer for getting everybody. Because you did, all you did was you just put it on yourself. 
the best thing I can do for you is to listen. I mean, it goes without saying, the best thing you can do for me <laughs> is to listen. <laughs> but I'm not saying that. Mm. It's, it's brilliant. Brilliant. I like number one. Yeah, and, and Ralph, the reality is uh, you would never go probably more than two hours before they have a break. Anyway. Never. I, I don't even go an hour, you know, and, yeah. and just because it's it's not conducive to learning. People need to get up. People need action items. You know, people need to, you know. Yeah. So I just add up an extra little how for you to explore with that possibility of the charging station and everything else you think about there is uh, simply ask the group. Ask the group. How can we give each other our complete and undivided attention for the next 60 minutes? Ask them. Okay, I got to write this down. All right, hold on. Because that's, that's, that's worthy to write down. That's a, great, that's a great tip. How can we give each other? I know I can just watch this back or listen back, but I'm not going to. That's perfect. And in that moment, that how question elevates you from the problem solver, the person who gets the charger to solve that problem, to moving the responsibility for attention to the room. And you're creating the environment for success to take place. Because they may come up with way better suggestions than your charging station that they can actually use in their own workplace because they came up with the idea. And in that moment, what you'll often find is somebody will say something like, look, Ralph, I will keep my phone on. I will be in silent. Uh, my mum's going in for chemo today and I need to keep it on. Ralph, I, I will switch my phone to silent. I just need you to know that today um, my son is sick and he's with his grandmother and we're not sure whether we should be taking him to the doctor. And in that moment, everybody will connect with their innate humanity and go, sure, of course, why wouldn't you? But it's their decision. It's not yours. Again, and I'm, I'm feeling like I have a uh, default aggression here, so I apologize initially, but I, I immediately want to give pushback. And, and, and it's because maybe my experience is tainted, but... <laughs> as and i'm just looking for guidance here okay so i'm just sure, sure. i'm just looking for guidance as i was given my example of the boardroom of a training session yeah in truth that is my very small problem right that is as a as a consultant as a teacher who works in corporations they pay me whether they listen or not right because so we can agree it's better if they listen, but it's it's not world-ending if they've got to keep their phone on. However, for my managers that are in the room that are listening to me and trying to figure out how to become better managers, they have a real problem, a real problem with employees and cell phone use. And when yeah. you work in long-term care where people need constant care to do basic things, eat use the bathroom, adjust themselves, adjust the temperature, find the magazine, pick up the remote control, get a drink of water, basic things. And, they, and, and the managers have trouble getting the staff to attend to them because every corner they turn around, they're on their phone. 
they're texting, they're Facebooking, they're literally on the phone, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it is a, so how do you solve, I mean, that, that's not even, that's not even the question because that's not a listening question. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that again, the opportunity is for the leader to co-create with their staff what a system and processes are that are sustainable. I have I have clients in long term aged care. the The system dynamic is not something that I'm unfamiliar with, but too many managers get the employees that are serving at the front line with their customers to conform to a process they created, whereas most often it's the nurses and the carers that have a better understanding of workflow of process, but they're never asked. They come to the manager and the manager goes, oh, let me dispense my wisdom of many weeks. Uh, sorry, um, years of experience. <laughs> and and everybody becomes addicted to this prescription mentality around management, as you said earlier on. If the manager just moves one step further forward to ask a question in that moment, or how long have you been thinking about this issue for, you'll be shocked because in eight out of 10 cases, Ralph, the person coming to the manager by being asked that question walks away with their own solution. Million percent, million percent. But there's a great addiction for the manager to want to be wanted. No to question. Want to be solving and their, their role is to create an environment where the system sustains itself independent of them. And that's a different orientation for a manager. Let's go to step number two. Step number two is really simple. A hydrated brain is a listening brain. Most Westerners are dehydrated by noon in their daytime. They don't drink enough water and Starbucks is not the definition of drinking water. Coffee is not going to kind of help in that. So the brain is 2% of body mass, yet it consumes 20% of blood sugars. So when you say your head hurts, it probably literally is because it's shrinking because it's not hydrated. So what I would encourage everybody to do, no matter what their meeting context is, is drink water yourself every half an hour, one glass every half an hour, and encourage whoever you're meeting with to also drink water. Because if you can get blood sugars to the brain faster, listening happens at the modern part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and that has a very big cognitive load on it when you're listening. Because as you listen, Ralph, you're trying to solve and you're trying to find a solution and you're there as the management consultant. Get out of my head, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're, you're a really good example of the shrewd listener, as I mentioned earlier on from, from our database of four different listening villains. Now, for most people, uh, that act of drinking water will do two things. One, it hydrates the body and the mind gets blood sugars up to the brain, but also sends a signal to the parasympathetic nervous system that says, everything's okay. You can be calm right now. There's no saber-toothed tiger chasing you. 
and a lot of leaders are dealing with complex situations. You mentioned one earlier on with aggression that might flip to the back of the brain, to the limbic system, the primitive part of the brain, where aggression lives, where, where, where negative, unproductive emotions might live as well. So the act of drinking will slow you down, will hydrate your brain. So tip number one, switch off the device, and tip number two, drink water, a glass of water every half an hour. And then tip number three, really simple. The deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. So there was a study done in 1993 in, in Ottawa, in Canada, with 412 university students. They were all paired off against each other, and they were connected to a device that measured their oxygen levels and the productivity of a conversation. And people who breathe more, who would have thought, the more oxygen you can get to the body and the, and the nervous system and the brain, the better the conversation is. Now, what was even more startling for me when I looked into this research fully, Ralph, is when people's breathing patterns were synchronized, they both defined it as the most productive conversation. So there was about 10% of this cohort that actually had their heart rate synchronized, not because deliberately, they, they just, their breathing got them to that place. So most of us, we can notice and control our own breathing. And once you've mastered that, notice the breathing of the other person as well. And how deeply are they breathing? Most people breathe quite shallowly and you can hear it because their voice kind of comes from about here in their throat rather than from down here, which is down near the lungs and the diaphragm. So tip number three is simply three deep breaths. Google in 2014 implemented something that was the most commented on thing by employees in the employee survey for that year. And that is if a meeting had more than six people in it, Ralph, they had a guided meditation for between one minute and three minutes. It was up to the person who was hosting the meeting to decide how long that took place. And for that period of time, there was some background music played. They were asked to switch off their devices, close their eyes, and prepare for the purpose of this meeting. Those meetings were defined as the most productive in their day. Those meetings were defined as the most impactful because people were present in the conversation and through the act of that guided meditation, they were just connecting with their breathing. Now for me, putting those three tips together, going to visit a client the minute I cross a lobby floor, I switch off my cell phone, I put it in my bag. I go into the lift, I put my back up right at the back of the lift. If there's nobody in the lift, I'll close my eyes and take three deep breaths. If there's somebody in the lift, I'll just lower my eyes, kind of look at my shoes, take three deep breaths. And then when I go to reception and come out of the elevator or the lift, I'll say to them, um, they'll offer me refreshments. I'll always ask for water for myself and for whoever else is attending. Now, the same is true in modern times, in the corona times, Ralph. Uh, the, a meeting is, is getting on a, on a video call. Uh, a meeting is getting on a telephone call. So I practice those same three principles. I practice switching off all the notifications that could possibly come up on my screen. I can't switch off all my electronic devices because that's the way I communicate with you. But it means that a Slack channel isn't open, an instant messenger window isn't open, a, 
uh, a Dropbox uh, syncing system isn't doing that. None of those things are going to be distracting for me. I have a little um, arrow with a marker pen on it, which is the center of the video webcam to say, look here, uh, rather than look at this very seductive image of myself on the screen and uh, the Icarus effect. And then, so what I want to do is I make sure before I get onto this conversation I had with you, Ralph, I switched off all my devices, I closed my eyes, and for two minutes I just said what would serve the people listening to this podcast the best. And then I had my water on my right-hand side, took a glass of water, and then I logged into the call and I was ready to go and be completely present for you. These are the tips that are the big difference for level one listening, listening to yourself. There are five levels of listening, but today I think if we could get the world to just do level one, uh, listening would be so much better. In our database, 86% of people can't get past level one because of internal and external distractions. You know, I don't know what I expected when I asked. For some reason, I was thinking there was going to be some math, maybe a magic trick, right? Like on how, how to listen better. I don't know why I didn't even fathom the idea that it was completely self-care. It's you take good care of yourself, better care of yourself. You're going to be more receptive and more open to others. Amazing, right? Like how I, that wasn't even on my radar. But I am a I am a an avid runner, mm. and I'm a writer, mm. and I cannot tell you. I was I was a writer for years longer than I was a runner, mm. and years I was a featured columnist for years before I ever picked up a pair of running shoes. And after I did pick up running, the amount of writing and the, the quality of my writing increased so much noticeably, like the, it was day and night. And if I just sit here and I think about why, I didn't have any distractions. I was completely hydrated, deep breathing, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> And, and I use it now, I use running as, as, as not just exercise, not just therapy, but as a writing tool. I start my run and I'm thinking, what am I working on? What am I trying to work through? Because writing, as you know, is a process of articulation, how to explain a thought. And that can be very challenging. Sometimes you're not even sure where it's going to go. And running has provided the best mechanism for me to connect with myself and to hear, get away from all that other stuff, just hone in on what it is I'm trying to say and how it is I'm trying to say. I've done my best writing my whole life running. It's crazy. I never really thought of it quite, you know, I never put the two together until you just kind of went through those three steps. And Well, let me give you some math seeing you ask for it. Ralph. Yeah, do some math. Let's do some math. We've, we've talked about the 125-400 rule. I speak at 125 words a minute. You listen at 400, so you're distracted. But the speaker has a bigger problem, and you just described it. The speaker has the problem of being able to speak at 125 words a minute, and yet has 900 words a minute stuck in their head. So you can think at 900 words a minute. You can speak at 125 words a minute. So the maths is the likelihood that the first thing you say 
is what you mean, there's an 11% chance what you say is what you mean. And you'll know this because of the writing process. That's hilarious. That's right. That's you, right. You never ever publish the first thing you write, yet we as listeners think that what the person wants to publish is what they say the first time. So if we move up some levels in when it comes to listening, as the listener, your role is to help draw out those other 125 words to double your listening productivity and listen to 22% of what they're thinking. You can ask these three really simple, unbiased questions. You could put them in your kit bag of things that you can use for the rest of your life. The first question, and these questions are all less than seven words, which means they're not biased questions. A lot of us think that when we ask questions, the longer the question, as long as we put a question mark on the end, then it's a question. No, it's not. If your question is more than seven words, it's unlikely to be a question. It's likely to be a statement cloaked in a veil of questioning, right? I so, like that seven, that seven word count. That's good. I like having a count. Yeah. So here's the first question you can ask somebody where they go and they draw a breath. And typically that's where as a listener, you would jump in and make a contribution or in your case, Ralph, your solution. You could simply say, tell me more. And off they go, they'll tell you more because they've got to get those other 125 words out. The second question you can ask is, and what else? <laughs> now, if you simply say, tell me more and what else, in nine out of 10 times, they'll draw their own conclusion. They will draw in their breath and they go, you know what? What's really important right now, and they're off, and they've They've, they've got down to the essence of the conversation. Now, the third question is the shortest question of all. The third question is only one word. You simply say, and, and most people will want to fill in the silence as the person saying and, and they will want to say and something else. In the West, we have this awkward relationship with silence. You mentioned it earlier on, Ralph. We, we call it the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence. In the East, in high context cultures where they're very linguistically developed, silence can last five minutes, five hours, five days. In, in a lot of tribal communities, they'll, they'll gather the tribes together and the most potent part of tribal formation is a campfire with silence. And again, we think that if we talk, we're solving and yet silence can do the heavy lifting for us. So those three questions, tell me more and what else? And, and for bonus points, don't say anything at all, just use silence and they'll, they'll get those words out. So if you allow the neuroscience and the maths of listening to work in your favor, more often than not, they'll take in a deep breath. They'll say, well, actually, rather than talking about that, Ralph, what we should be talking about, or they'll say, 
Actually, the most important thing we should talk about, or they'll say, hmm, now that I've thought about it a little longer, can we just speak about something else? Because although I said that, that's not really what matters to me right now. Have you ever been in a situation like that, Ralph? A million percent. Simple act of those three questions and use of silence. And, and they're not long, complex questions. They're really simple, short questions. And what else? Tell me more and silence. If you can think about those, you'll double their listening productivity because the job of the listener is not to make sense of what the speaker says. It's to help them make sense of what they're thinking. I think that is so great. And I, I really appreciate you being on with me today because it's been really wonderful just talking to you and listening and, and relating it so relatable to management because we really get in the way of trying to solve everything. And your point is very valid. It's not always our job to solve the problem as it is to listen. And while we're listening, guess who's going to solve the problem? The person talking. They already have their own solutions. They already know what their best is. And as a matter of fact, I, you know, just listening, because I'm, I'm creating also at 900 words a minute here while you're talking at 125, um, I, I'm, I'm, there, there are many times when somebody is telling me something and they will stop me from talking, knowing I'm going to. They'll be like, I know what you're going to say. Don't and, and they'll, so, they'll be like, I know where I got it wrong. Don't you know what to say? And they're, they're literally just talking themselves. It's almost like I don't even need to be there. <laughs> I guess they're just solving their own problem as they explain to me what they did. And they're like, oh, and, and I know I shouldn't have done that, but I did this. And I, I, you know what's going to happen. I shouldn't have done it, but I did, you know. It's that whole... Yeah, the reality is you do need to be there, Ralph. And no, I know, I know. You need to be there is the brain wires differently when you speak what you're thinking compared to trying to think it and solve it in your own mind. Your mind, when it's thinking through a problem, is like a, a, a clothes washing machine that's on wash cycle. It's dirty, it's sudsy, it's agitated, it's moving around, but it's not making progress. The act of speaking is like a rinse cycle for the brain. It gets all the dirty stuff out and it gets clear thinking coming through. So for a lot of us as leaders, our presence alone often will shift the state of their thinking even before they've spoken. But the minute they speak, the reason people have those aha moments is because the act of speaking to somebody else, that co-creation of a solution, is wiring differently in the brain. It's connecting neural pathways in a very different way when you speak it to when you are thinking it. Well, I don't think I could have said it better. Thank you so much for being on. How do we how do we find you? How do we get a hold of you? How do how does someone work with you? Look, I would really encourage everybody. I've got a, a free listening quiz that takes seven minutes. If you visit listeningquiz.com, you'll get a completely tailored report to your listening barriers based on our research. We'll give you three tips. We'll give you a 90-day action plan, which is a set of weekly emails to help you build your listening muscles, to help you move from a distracted listener to a deep and impactful listener. So ralphlisteningquiz.com is the starting place. You can listen to the podcast where we interview professional listeners like air traffic controllers, high court judges, journalists, FBI hostage negotiators, 
and many other professional listeners. Um, you can check out the book and the playing cards. Listeningquiz.com is the starting place for all of that. I love the title, A Professional Listener. I'm going to try that one on for a while. A professional listener. That's what I'm going to be. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would say um, New York Times bestselling author James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits, talks about when you want to shift what you want to do, you need to shift your identity before you start to get into any tactics. So for you claiming the identity of a professional listener, Ralph, it's a really good starting point. It's a nice step. Thank you so much for being on, and uh, I wish you all the best, my friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>